Hi, and welcome to The Rereaders. In this week's podcast, we continue our series talking with writers about the writers they regularly revisit and indeed reread. I'm your host, Sam Twyford Moore, and this week our guest is the writer, publisher, and renowned photographer, Alan Whedon. Hello, Alan. Hello, Sam. All the way up from Melbourne. Oh, thank God for second place. You're in you're in your real home of Sydney. I'm in my it's real home, yeah. True spiritual aesthetic home. Uh, and we're lucky to be rejoined by Fiona Wright, who you will have heard on our first episode of the season discussing the work of Leslie Jameson. Hello, Fiona. Hi, Sam. And of course, uh, Virginia Woolf, Fiona's wonderful assistance dog is back too so if you back here to cause trouble you know who that is alan i'm going to introduce you you are a publisher and photographer Uh, your work has been published in vice id and the quietest among others currently you work as a journalist in the abc asia pacific newsroom and you're the creative director of swampland a print publication devoted to long-form australian music and journalism and photography so, Alan, that's like an insane amount of talented things you do. How do you manage all of these projects? Uh, manage is a good word. <laughs> I think manage, manage implies that there's a methodical thought-out process which um, is put in place, but I feel like most people who have side hustles that also need to pay rent in this current economy and try not to, as we speak, catch a um, global virus. Maybe what I'm pointing to is you know, you take your photography as seriously as you take your writing as seriously as you take your journalism, you know, you're someone who's interested in multi-forms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess to distinguish something, you know, I I don't necessarily, I wouldn't call myself a photojournalist. I I guess pursue ideas and concepts in kind of, for lack of a better term, a more fine art tradition with my photographic work, try to show regularly and sort of um, keep abreast of um, conversations in contemporary photography, whether that's, you know, I mean, you know, it is a global conversation um, because I remember a few weeks ago, somebody had used the phrase, you know, Instagram is a window shop to the world. Mm. And I very much, yeah, agree with that. Um, and I'm hoping we get to talk about Instagram a little bit yeah, in, this, in this chat. <laughs> um, you've also been a big champion of long form writing. You know, Swampland, I feel like was a publication or is a publication that, uh, you know, took the capsule music review and said, that's not enough. Like we want you, our writers, to be able to go in depth is that kind of the ethos that was driving it when you yeah, started that up? And yeah. can you tell us a bit about Swampland? Yeah. Um, so Swampland is a publication, a purely print publication, um, devoted to long-form Australian music and photography. And the reason why I... Oh, sorry, writing writing and photography, I should it's say. Hard to keep it's it hard all, to, keep, yeah, yeah. to keep it all together. <laughs> There's so many elements. Um, well, it's just, I think the reason... Because easily we could just say that we're sort of a journal of Australian long-form journalism um, that specialises in music, but I feel like that doesn't capture most of it um, mm. because, you know, if I was to hear that, I'd, I'd be like, Ugh, boring, move on, because mm. um, I don't want to read a book every month. But it's just one of those things where it's like we very much specialise and wanted to champion Australian photography because I guess for the backstory, I did, did a journalism degree straight after high school and I remember my first year, I was just very disillusioned with the idea of kind of that churn that 24-hour news cycle, you know, and, you know, it was very much drummed into us, like, get a Twitter, like, be the best 24-hour person, never switch off, like, you're, you know, 
constantly going to be on. And I was like, well, I don't think this is a really good way of it keeping abreast of how the world doesn't is. Doesn't sound not a good healthy. way to live. It sounds unhealthy. I did want to talk about Instagram. I'd say both of you use Instagram to uh, put photos of books that you are reading up. I mean, I, I kind of get to know what each of you are reading. I don't think I'd describe either of you as influencers. I'm sure you don't want to be described that way. Excuse me, I have a thousand followers. Does that make you an influencer? I don't know. <laughs> oh God, seriously, I am all for writers becoming influencers because how else are we going to monetize yeah. our erotic selves? Yeah, exactly. If you I like get... that you say mine's like book photos because it's like pretty much all dog photos as well. There is an occasional photo of a book with a well-placed cup of coffee that is perfectly <laughs> framed, Fiona. You know this to be true. Oh God. I need to follow your account. (laughs) But I wondered how has your reading practice kind of changed with social media and the ability to kind of form a bit of a community around what you're reading? Mm. Do you know, it's not Instagram for me that does that. It's Twitter, which I know is like a cesspit, but I also (laughs) really like Twitter. And And the thing that I like most about it is people getting excited about a thing that they've read and posting about it. And that feels like being part of a literary conversation in a way that, Uh, I really appreciate and that I think I got involved in too when I was very physically unwell too and felt like I could, you know, be a part of the community in a way that I suddenly wasn't able to with the same sort of presence. But, yeah, I I love it for that. Mm. I have a slightly different relationship in the sense that, um, you know, I get a lot more of gratification from my photography than I do my writing and that's purely just on a visceral level because I know when people respond to a certain image of mine more so than a piece of writing I would genuinely not care if nobody cared about any piece of writing that I do for the rest of my life but if, <laughs> if, if people if people like respond to an image of mine that is fantastic and that's just kind of my the way that I kind of go about making sense of the world but it's it's interesting that you, um, I guess, talk about the relationship between Twitter and Instagram for you, Fiona, mm. because in many senses, I guess, we kind of are almost kind of like ships in the night because I guess the reason I know Sam is because I used to be very much heavily involved in, you know, for lack of a better term, a literary scene in Melbourne, which was linked to VoiceWorks, which is a yep. publication that publishes... The literary scene. <laughs> the literary scene. Oh, heaven forbid. I kind of... If, if people talk about the literary scene, I think I just might want to stab my eye out with a fork. <laughs> but, yeah, so initially when I was a lot... When I say when, when I was a lot younger, um, you know, I started uni at 17. You know, I, I turned 18 midway through my first year. Yeah, Twitter was this kind of emerging thing where it's like, you know, if you want to build your personal brand, if you want to become this person, like, get on Twitter. Particularly, and I think the reason why I have this this fear and this innate cynicism about Twitter is because I've come to it as a journalist and trained as a journalist. Yeah. And I think it's different for you some... You see, that's, yeah. that's really interesting to me because mm. I, I don't know if you know this, but I I did a journalism oh, right. undergrad degree as well. Yeah, yeah but I'm, I think... I'm just enough older than you that, like, the internet had arrived, obviously, but social media hadn't quite happened yet. So it was this really weird space where, like, we, we spent a semester making a website, for starters, which was, like, totally cute. Wow. We used Dreamweaver. And there was this sense that everything was going to change, but nobody knew how. I don't, I don't think they knew the extent of it right. either. But there was this kind of sense that something was coming and we just mm. didn't know what it was yet. I, st- I still remember get the pressure of like filing quickly and that sort of That's stuff, which which was physically impossible for me. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, yeah, I had this kind of strange experience where I, st- I was doing literature subjects as well and I fell in love with them at the same time that I was just like butting up against the disgusting boys club of journalism it at the really time is, as well. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't um, changed really. No. <laughs> the writer that we're going to talk about today uh, does does use the internet so we will come back to this discussion um alan i'm going to let you say who the writer is and then i'll introduce them his name is alexander cheap 
So Alexander Chi is the author of two novels, Edinburgh, which was published in 2001, and The Queen of the Night, which was published in 2016. Chi has been a prolific uh, publisher of short stories and essays over the year, and in 2018, a collection of those essays under the title How to Write an Autobiographical Novel uh, was released, which I'm safe to say cut through in a way I think the earlier novels might not have despite the fact that the essay collection frequently refers back to those very novels. As a collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel details Chi's experience as a Korean-American author in a predominantly white literary industry and powerfully documents his experiences during the AIDS crisis and his involvement in the famous activist group ACT UP. Alan and Fiona, how did you each both first come to Alexander's work? I think you recommended it to me, Sam. God, I'm good, aren't I? You are good, yeah. <laughs> and then I like, you know, saw the title um, and was really intrigued by that because I love, I, you know, I've, I've got a real thing for autofiction. Just, I just love it. And I love that blurring of autobiography and fiction. Um, so it was super, was sort of drawn in that way. But I found those, those essays about the AIDS crisis and queerness and activism kind of incredibly powerful. Um, as for me, I, it actually came via a podcast. There's this amazing queer podcast that I listen to, Food for Thought, which is, a, I guess, a cultural gab fest for queer writers of colour. Is it thought, not thought? Food, thought spelt T-H-O-T. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Um, <laughs> just in case people want to Google it yeah, and yeah, have yeah. a listen. Food, and then the, the four is numerical. Um, and then they uh, had recommended um, Alexander's work. And I think one of the things I am doing as a reader, I guess, as I sort of get older, is just to try and find more queer texts, Mm-mm. which I guess weren't necessarily... Um, that much emphasized when I was at uni slash, you know, I had to like shove three years of literature into an undergrad on top of well, doing we, journalism. I can remember in one of my Auslit subjects having like one week that was like queer week and that was it. Yeah. Genuinely. <laughs> it's like, you know, and it's like, cool, we're going to get you introduced to the Victorian canon and that's like one Victorian book a week for 12 weeks. Mm-mm. And it's like, uh, Miss Guzzi? Um Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that goes to a question that I did want to ask you, Alan, is the importance, you know, for a younger queer generation to be able to access not just older queer writers, but also, you know, gay men who lived through the AIDS crisis and were as close to it as you can get, how important the documentation of that time is. Yeah. One of the things I genuinely do try and keep doing, I think, um, I guess for context, I was born in 94, so I sort of really came after the wave of everything really, you know, I know that Australia was quite behind. There was still Mm. quite a conversation about AIDS in the 90s as well. But, you know, my coming of age was the late 2000s really mm. where um within you know by the time i hit my 20s there was prep and Travada, which is the drug which you know is you know proven yep. to be quite um a powerful tool in the fight against um aids and hiv um but another thing i guess the reason why i was so interested in alexander's work is i just think one of the biggest things that is an issue in this current environment in terms of i guess queer politics in my in my from my perspective um is just having intergenerational conversations um, so much of life, particularly for me, you know, I came up through social media. You know, I grew mm. up with social media. I grew up with gay dating apps and, you know, romance apps or whatever. And a lot of it is predicated on the next hot young thing, which, you know, cuts out a lot, you know, a lot of the conversation. And um, I think what I find so exhilarating in Alexander's work is having an elder and uh, mm. a, a really prominent member. No, that's a perfect yeah. term. Elder yeah. is a perfect and it's, term. It's history too, right? Yeah. Like I, I've been thinking a lot lately about how little 
we know and, and specifically how little I know about queer history and it's mm. what happens that I mean that's what marginalization is right yeah. it's histories that don't get taught and, and kind of get Absolutely. glossed over you know so I'm, that's something I'm really yeah. trying to address to learn more yeah. yeah I did just want to jump Alan to the fact that you actually met Alexander and got to photograph him it's a stunning photo uh, what was that experience like so I guess for context um, I didn't quite um, yeah, come to how to write an autobiographical novel by myself. Um, it was recommended by a friend of mine, Toby, um, and he, you know, basically, you know, sent me a message and he was like, "You need to read this immediately." Um, and then it got sent down to me. We sort of played book tag between Melbourne and Sydney, and uh, I breathed it in within forty eight hours. It was probably one of the most exhilarating moments of my reading life. Wow. I'd like, and I genuinely say that um, without trying to sound like a tool. It was one of those weeks where it's like, oh, I really should go to bed and, you know, um, get up in time for work. <laughs> and then it was like, uh, it comes to 4am and I'm like, I cannot stop. It really, really moved me in a way that I genuinely haven't experienced with books before. And, you know, part of that is talking to the queer Eurasian experience. Very rarely are we talked about at all in mm. literature. You know, I, I talked about Victorian literature earlier, you know, the mixed race Thing or plotline in a story is the kind of weird, you know, the subaltern. It's um, Angry Bertha banging in the in the basement in uh, Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Yeah, and I guess the reason why it got to a point where I got to take his photo is, I guess, for me, how I sort of mark really intensive periods in my life is through photography. I capture moments not necessarily with the intention to have them out into the world, but just as a timestamp to be like, this is me then. I wrote to him, and and I guess I've never ever written to an author before in my life. Right, they say not to meet your heroes. Did you yeah. go into it a bit like? No, well, I still have it. So it's actually funny that we talk about Instagram because Instagram was the medium which I messaged him because originally I was going to be like, all right. Did you drop into his DMs? I did drop into said? his DMs, as the kids say. Um, but the reason why I did it is it kind of, I was trying to figure out. Okay, cool. Well, I could write to his. I could write to his official literary email address where he probably gets like all these different mailbags and whatever but this was within that 48 hour mm-hmm. period where I had just finished I breathed in the book that's what I kept telling friends I was like I breathed in this book and you need to do something with this nervous energy like it's you know exhilarating is definitely the word that comes to mind so I was like what is the platform that's going to give the most sense of immediacy to articulate and reflect what I'm feeling right now so I basically hit Alexander Chi up on Instagram and I was like hey I just thought I'd let you know that um, very rarely have I ever come across the queer Eurasian experience and I just, you know, don't want to be weird or anything, but I just thought I'd say thank you. Thank you for validating. Well, not validating, but just reflecting an experience that Mm. very rarely gets spoken about in the broader culture. Can I just tell the listeners that writers fucking love it when you do that? So, like, don't be shy about it. Drop them a note. Uh Drop into their their DMs. Um, So I did. And and, and I guess for, like, you won't be able to see this, but in the book, on the inside front and back covers, there are all of these beautiful, like, black and white Polaroid passport photos. I think I I did want to ask you this because I think on Instagram um, you put up a series of photo booth-style selfies of yourself uh, and wrote, 2019, a year of joyous queer Eurasian self-representation, thanks to Alexander Chi. And I think you must have tagged him. I did. And did he did he see that? He did. Um, and and this, is, this is the weird thing about Instagram, because I think, you know, whenever you engage with someone, you leave certain residue. Um, so this came after we messaged on Instagram. And oh, I guess to round off the photo story, he was in Sydney for the Writers' Festival. And I just messaged and I said, hey, do you mind if I take your portrait? It would be a wonderful way to just sort of close the loop of this mm. engagement with you. And he agreed. And it was really lovely. Basically, uh, why I did that um, is throughout 2019, 
it was, I guess, to fight certain insecurities I had about myself. You know, I know that, you know, people will have their inner phobias, you know, and it go- goes loud and soft depending on where you are in life. But for me, you know, it's kind of internalized homophobia, internalized racism about being perceived as weak, particularly in the gay community, you know, um, where sort of white, hetero, cis, passing men, you know, are on the top of this invisible hierarchy. And then coming to how to write an autobiographical novel with Alexander just looking like a young babe in the inside and back, I was like, wow, I genuinely cannot remember a time where I've seen this represented. And I was like, fuck it, I am going to plonk myself. Because in Melbourne, right near Flinders Street Station, there's a beautiful 1970s black and white photo booth, which is just, you know, your passport photos. Initially, I'm like, oh my God, what if somebody sees me go into this photo booth alone, taking selfies of myself? I was like, and then, so it was like getting over these small steps and I'm just like, fuck it. Every month I'm going to go to this photo booth, take a photo of myself as validation for my experience, myself and journal about it. What a great ritual. Yeah. It was a ritual to have. Yeah. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going to do this in 2019. Don't know if it's going to become a project. I'm just going to do it. And it continued. Excellent. Well, the essay you have specifically highlighted for us to discuss from the collection is Girl, uh, which was first published in Guernica in 2015. Girl details Chi's first night going out in drag in San Francisco's famous Castro district on Halloween 1990. In the essay, Chi deftly weaves observations of his experiences that night with a much bigger picture portrait of dress, makeup, and what the term passing might mean in his life. Alan, you brought along a specific quote you'd like to read from the essay, I think which goes to the heart of what it's about. I found it in a pattern for the history of half-breeds hidden in every culture. Historically, we are allowed neither the privileges of the ruling class nor the community of those who are ruled. To each side that disowns us, we represent everything the other does not have, We only survive if we are valued, and we are valued only for strength or beauty, sometimes for intelligence or cunning. As I read these stories of who survives and who does not, I know that I have survived in all of these ways, and that these are the only ways I have survived so far. Hmm. Man, he's such a beautiful writer. Why did that hit you, Alan? Just further the sheer dearth of, like, literature or I guess ideas around that kind of, for lack of a better term, liminal space in being somebody Eurasian. So, you know, the obvious example that comes into my head is on my mother's side, I'm perceived as a white man. And on my father's side, which Mm -hmm. is Anglo-Celtic, I'm perceived as the biracial Asian kid. I think I'm at a point in my life where I've, you know, I'm being incredibly self-critical about identity and lineages and sort of origin stories. Having a paragraph like that, which essentially summarizes a whole lifetime of double looks, quizzical glances, questions about, uh, you know, sort of those backhanded compliments where it's like, ah, oh, you know, you could pass as French or German. Mm. And oh, as God. A, yeah, and as a kid, as a kid, I'd, I'd love that. Yeah, like, right. I want to be put into the ruling class, which, oh, and, and the default narrative, the neutral, what is considered neutral, which is whiteness. And having a paragraph to be like, oh, my God, I'm not the only one feeling this way. I'm just like, I wanted to like bash the doors down and like scream from the rooftops and be like, oh my God, she's actually said something that has been waiting a whole lifetime to be expressed. But isn't that like, that's exactly why writing mm. exists. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that, particularly with um, Chi's use of the term passing, because he, he has a kind of, he, a double effect to it, which is the the fact of him going out in drag means that he's passing in terms of gender and then it leads to this conversation around passing in terms of race. Mm. Um, I'm wondering if you can unpack a little bit what, what he's talking about there. 
from memory, the essay talks about him, yeah, going out and dragging San Fran, but very much playing up aspects of his Asian femininity. Um, and I think the other reason why I found it so um, interesting is, I guess, particularly within the gay community, Asianness is something to turn tone down. It is conflated with femininity, which in gay power structures is seen as a really big negative. Mm. Um, you know, the more femme you are, the more likely you are to be down in the pecking order. You don't fall in the mask for mask. You don't mask for mask thing, which shits me to no end. But to loop back to Chi, you know, it is about the invisibility of language in mm. a way and the importance of not hiding language, but to kind of highlight it to, to unpack, you know, what's mm. contained within, I suppose. Yeah, and it's interesting that you talk about um, the importance of language because the one that I... I mean, in that paragraph that I read, he, t- he specifically uses the word, yeah, we're valued for our cunning. So um, my father's Anglo-Celtic, my mother's Filipino. It's like, you know, my mother was this scheming woman who, you know, disrupted this white family and got in. And because I'm a 90s baby, I can't not think about the fact that for most of Australian life, the one stereotype of a Filipino woman was Rose Hancock, who mm. was the was the um, the wife of Gina Reinhart's dad, Lang Hancock, the mining billionaire. And, you know, her, she started off as a maid in his house and then rose up in this kind of almost beautifully Shakespearean way to become queen of the castle. But, yeah, what I guess the reason why cunning comes is was just so visceral because it just, Alexander, she just, like, sucked me in the face and all of these things just came out and I was like, oh, my God, you are articulating so much about my life you know you're just some korean american dude who grew up in the atlantic atlantic north america it's an amazing piece because in some ways it's it's such a traditional memoir there's not much more to it than relating that night on the surface Mm. but it loops back to ideas in a really kind of powerful way i'm wondering fiona if you kind of picked up any essayistic tricks from it oh i liked I, I was really interested in the, the the term girl and how that looped through. Well, another, yeah, another kind of, you know, yeah. use of language that has a particular meaning. Yeah, yeah, and, and it works both as, you know, a, a kind of describer that here we are playing at being girls, but it's also like what does it mean when we call each other girl and also a broader thinking about femininity or kind of his own relationship with femininity as well that I thought was a a really interesting through line there. Yeah, and from memory, girl as in, like, kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, um, A-A-V-E English as in, like, African-American vernacular English. You could hear Alexander, like, voice it in different registers. It's like, girl, girl, you know, which ultimately has its roots in, um, yeah, the way that, you know, communities across North America have, you know... And notoriously co-opting it. Co-opting it, yeah. Making it their own. I am... I'm so interested in this collection as a whole because... I hadn't heard of him before this collection and it's such a unique thing for a book of essays to come out and really revive, you know, a writer in that way because it's quite a literary collection of essays as well. There's a lot of references to writing mm-hmm. and, and how to write and, and Alexander Chi's past novels as well. Was, did, was that something that thrilled you both, that this was kind of a high, serious sort of literary work that kind of broke through in that sense? I, I think I really liked the way it flipped that it has these high literary essays that that I loved, but there's also there's also an essay there on tarot, reading tarot cards and getting a friend to do a creative tarot reading for him. I I, I loved the the mixedness of it in that sense. Mm. I mean, for for the, for people who aren't familiar with Alexander Chi, his career just is very peculiar. Mm. So he came out of the I what is it the Workshop. writers workshop yes, but he started off as an art kid, and I, I guess that was kind of part of the reason why I I also identified with Alexander is like I have like run rings around my head wondering whether or not I should have gone to art school. 
the reason why I, I guess I make the, make a point out of this is his first novel took forever to be published and it won all these prizes at the Iowa City Workshop, couldn't find a publisher, and then I think something happened with Edinburgh. It got published with some small indie Asian American... They were specifically publishing Asian American writers. Um, and then something happened and there was a switch and then everybody started reprinting and wanting their hands on Alexander Chi. Right. And the other part of that story is probably up until, you know, the last few years, those imprints, you know, for diverse writing in, in kind of quotation marks were sort of ghettoized in a way. The approach mm. wasn't as kind of as sincere as you would actually hope it is or, you know, like as meaningful, I suppose. And that, you know, like I feel like the change in the last few years has been for this stuff to actually find its audience and be prioritised rather than put to a side as such. Mm. Do you find that, Alan, with how this work kind of like hit? Um, yes and no. I think it was a very peculiar American phenomenon um, and I can't help but wonder whether or not it was a product of the fact that the broader publishing industry still... I kind of typified journalism and the broader kind of publishing industry is like a kid who's like, look, ma'am, mum, no hands. And they've like <laughs> done a kick, kick flip and they've absolutely smashed their head on the floor bleeding and nobody knows what to do and like, oh. Uh, and they're still there but I feel as though there's kind of been this subtle reset something's happened yeah there was just something about how to write an autobiographical novel where Mm. it was like oh yeah cool it's been out there and then something in the culture just switched Mm. and then it was everywhere again and you just I genuinely don't can't explain it can I can I ask another question Mm. about girl when I reread this the thing that I kept thinking about is the kind of consumption that this idea of of like you know the scenes are mostly of Chi and his four friends all in drag walking down the main street of the Castro and um, knowing that this was a night when so many cars full of people coming in specifically to see people like them um, were going to be there. And I kept thinking about this kind of uh, weird kind of consumption of the queer body, I think because I was reading it so so soon after Mardi Gras too and some of the like worst excesses of that. It, you know, I, I found that such a fascinating thread and I think it kind of runs mm. through them too. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So the the image that comes to mind is um, when she talks about being consumed as a beautiful Asian woman, where all of the things that you know, in one sense are seen as a negative now are flipped. And it's like, I'm a feminine woman. You prize me for this. You know, I guess what I'm like quite interested in is kind of the flip in that yeah, femininity, yeah. that hyper-femininity which people can, can consume and um, from memory the, 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 the cars that were on the street were these kind of, for lack of a better term, bros yeah. who were ogling at you um, and I guess the, the thing that I am, was left with after reading that essay is like what would it be like to be fully consumed and to know and feed that you know, it's, it's kind of like this uh, this knife edge, right? Where it's yeah. like, it, I know this will harm me in some way, but I actually am getting a lot of gratification mm. from this. Um, and it's this, you know, hyper-real performance, right, yeah. of what we think femininity is. What is it like to be consumed or seen as an mm. object of desire by someone who normally in daily life, if you were just presenting as yourself, would like, you know... Um, yeah, yeah. Someone who would be seen as a threat. Mm. What if that threat is neutralised? Uh, what if that trauma becomes something that then covets you and you are the object of desire and you are the subject when so much of your life is the non-subject? Um, Alan, is there another essay in the collection that you'd particularly point out to people just as a last little um, shout-out to Chi? 
All right, so the essay that I would recommend is The Rosary. It's this beautiful anecdote about Chi moving to a new city. And it's this beautiful articulation of time because he basically is sort of in his mid-career phase and you see him essentially just ordering all these plants, these rose plants in. And you basically just see Alexander really taking delicate time to write and consume and um, I guess think about the way that these rose plants are planted kind of about slowing down as well and i think mm. we can recommend um slowing down and trying to just take some time to sit with chi speaking of recommends the rereaders has traditionally always ended with uh, us recommending something completely out of the box and different uh fiona what do you have i guess this is my my recommend is slightly about slowing down i am recommending drinking alone um <laughs> I have recently started a little ritual where I will go and sit in a bar with a book and a drink and my notepad and I get so much shit done. It's amazing. I was always kind of a bit nervous about doing that because it made me feel judged, but I say embrace it and get sloshed by yourself. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend something that might be a bit obvious. There's a YouTube channel uh, that's uh, provided by the food magazine Bon Appetit, uh, and they have a particular show on that channel that's called Gourmet Makes with Claire Savitz, where she attempts to remake the most trash snacks, and it's just genius. Oh wow! Her frustration is so visible during these videos, um, and it's actually because of that really cathartic to watch if you're having a bad week. Um, <laughs> there are so many episodes up now, but I highly recommend any video that involves tempering chocolate because it just drives her so crazy. Uh, the Kit Kat episode is maybe the classic. Alan, what about you? Um, this one comes courtesy of my psych, Richard. We all love Richard. So basically, I had a session this week and he was like, and it kind of stems from this wonderful Instagram account that I follow called Humans of Late Capitalism. Um, and there's this one meme where it's just like, and it's like a, you know, a meme of a guy thinking, and it's like, how to relax. And it's like, monetizing my hobbies, must be doing productivity. Oh, yes, I've seen well, that yeah, one. And it's a beautiful, beautiful meme, but it kind of articulates this present moment where we've always got a side hustle and we've always got a side stick. You know, we're all fearful about our legacies once we die, so we have to have something else to show for it. But then Richard was like, cool, it seems like you're doing a lot of work that is involved. When you say that you, you relax, you relax in a way which either is, you know, career development or personal growth <laughs> which you can then show me the next time you come see me and I was like oh yeah oh that's so funny yeah cool and he was like cool homework this week is trying to relax try to identify five different ways where you can relax which isn't necessarily involved in career oh. development and or personal growth as an objective that's a fantastic recommend Alan thank you so much for joining us Thank you for All having me. All the way me. from Melbourne. Uh, please stay in Sydney. Don't go back to Yeah, it Melbourne. smells. Uh, Fiona, thanks for joining us again, and we'll hopefully hear from you again soon. Thank you for having me. This has been The Rereaders. The Rereaders is recorded on Gadigal land, land that was never ceded. We pay our respects to First Nations elders past, present and emerging and recognise their millennia-old tradition of storytelling, which so clearly informs the literary production done in this country today. Our thanks to FBI Radio for supporting this season. The Rereaders is produced by the wonderful Martin Reyes. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Rereaders. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us again soon. Mm-hmm.